death is horrible. It's ruthless. Um, it's, it's always an ambush. You know, even the person that we've known it's coming for a long time, death is an imposter. It's an ambush. It, it, it's a robber. It, it suffer the death of someone you know and love, and you face this terrifying silence. The feeling that your heart is in pieces and that your mind's a blank. Lord Byron, a, a great poet, he said, There is no joy the world can give like that it takes away. That's the cruel irony of death. That the greatest joys the world gives do not compare to the joys that death takes away. When children die, it's the future that we're robbed of. If you've ever lost a child. When our parents die, it's the past that seems to be robbed from us. And so the valley of the shadow of death, from wherever it's happening, is this incredible, unending darkness. Today is the last sermon in our series on suffering. And it falls on this day, All Saints Sunday, the Sunday when we remember those who have died, those who are no longer with us. Now, in order to hear what God says to us through Scripture about this issue of death, it is absolutely fundamental that we start at the beginning. On the very first page. So if you have your Bible, turn to the very first page of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now I've talked about this a number of times in the life of our church. This is a Hebrew poetic device called a merasmus. It's where you pick two terms of extreme. It's like me saying to my wife, Janelle, I love you day and night. So, which means I love you all the time, right? That's a morass. That's a poetic way of saying everything. So when the Bible starts by saying God created the heavens and the earth, it does not mean God made what's up there and he made what's down here. Instead, it means God made everything. Everything that exists was made by God. There is nothing that exists that God did not create. Now, if you read through Genesis chapter 1 and you pay attention to the wharf, to the rhythm of the language, there's this phrase that keeps coming up over and over again. It's right after he makes light in verse 4. God sees what he had made and behold, it is good. And then in verse 10, after the continents emerge from the oceans, God looks at what he's made and he says, wow, that's good. And then in verse 13, after the vegetation grows, God looks at the vegetation and says, that's good. And then in verse 18, after the creation of the sun and the moon, God, it's like my wife, whenever she sees a moon, she's like, Aubrey, look at this. That thing, that's how we were watching a movie the other night and the moon was huge. And she was like, do you think there's really a place where the moon is that big? God looks at the sun and the moon and what does he say? That's good. And then in verse 21, after the arrival of fish and birds, God says, that's good. And then in verse 25, after all the land animals are popping up and showing, God says, that's good. And then 
what we see is that six times God does this. And in my mind, I've told many of you this before, it's, it's like, um, have any of you seen the movie uh, Babette's Feast? Right? It's like God is this master chef, right? And he's got six courses. And after each course, he kisses his fingers, right? And he says, that's good, that's good. And then at the very end, there's a seventh course. It's the pièce de résistance, right? He brings it out. It's the creation of humans. And then he looks back at the whole thing, and he's like the master chef. And what does he say in verse 31? It is very good. Very good. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3. And everything changes, right? It's not good anymore. Adam and Eve sin. And when Adam and Eve sin, God's creation is tyrannized. All of this goodness. Now, what we need to see in order to wrap our minds around what God tells us in Scripture about this subject of death, what we need to see is that in Genesis chapter 3... When sin enters God's seven-time good creation, two primary things happen. The first thing that happens is that everything breaks. I've told you this, some of you this before. When my brother and I were teenagers, we were having a fight on the back porch with our fist. And it wasn't exactly turning out the way my older brother wanted it to turn out. Um, because I'd been to band and I developed cat-like reflexes and... Um, <laughs> And so, D, my older brother, takes a screwdriver um, and he throws it at me. But I jump out of the way very quickly. And uh, time stands still. And I look at him and he looks at me. And we both look at the screwdriver hurtling through the air. You know, this matrix thing where you can see every little, every little molecule. It hits the ground and then we both look up. And we both look at the glass door. And we both look at my dad standing behind the glass door, <laughs> looking at us through the glass door. And the screwdriver, right? It hits the ground, it bounces up, and it hits the corner of the glass. And for, I don't know, eight or nine years, nothing happens. Or maybe it was a tenth of a second. And then suddenly we heard the sound, right? And then that glass just spiderwebbed, right? And then it fell to the ground. Look, when Adam and Eve reached out, when they get that fruit and they sin, that happened. Every square inch of God's good creation was shattered. In fact, immediately after that, when God gets Adam's attention, what does he say to Adam? Cursed is the ground because of what you just did. And cursed is childbirth because of what you just did. The first poem in the Bible is Adam looking at Eve and they're both in their birthday suits. And what does Adam say? It's erotic love poetry in ancient Near Eastern literature. Bone in my bones, flesh in my flesh. This would be called woman because she was... This is lo- the second... That was before sin. Then there's sin. The next poem in the Bible is Lamech talking to his wives and saying, it's a poem of violence and revenge. You compare art before and after sin in Genesis 2, 3, and 4. Before sin, it's good. After sin, it's violent and awful. Family, before sin, the last picture on the pages of the Bible before sin, and the man and his wife, this is the last verse of Genesis 2, and the man and his wife were naked and unashamed. Then they sin, and what's the very first story in the Bible after sin? Cain killing Abel. Family has been shattered. It is no longer a place of safety and security where you're at peace with who you are, at peace with who God made you. It is now a place of jealousy and insecurity and violence and hatred and murder. 
You could go on and on and on and see what happens to this world. And that's the first result of sin. Everything is twisted. Everything is in rebellion. The second result of sin. What did God say to Adam when he told him, do not eat of the fruit of that tree? Because in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The second result of sin is that death entered God's good creation. And that's in chapter 2, verse 17. Don't eat it because death comes after this. And then in four, chapter 4, verse 8, Cain kills Abel. In chapter 4, verse 23, Lamech kills a man just for wounding him. In chapter 5, verse 5, Adam dies. In chapter 5, verse 8, Seth dies. In chapter 5, verse 11, Enosh dies. And by the time you get to chapter 11 of Genesis, death has turned into an avalanche. That is touching everything. These are the two results of sin. Sin has brought two things into this world. Brokenness to every square inch of God's creation. And death. Now. The Bible is not an encyclopedia. It's a story. And stories have beginnings. They have middles. And they have endings. We've just looked at the beginning of the story. Called the Bible. Now let's race forward and look at the middle. Because if you're going to. Come to grips with death. You have to see how death is configured in the arc of the biblical narrative. So that's why it shows up. That's how it shows up. Now, in the middle of the story, that's the part of the story that is the life of Jesus Christ. In the biographies of Jesus, we learn that Jesus is constantly working against both of these two realities, brokenness and death. He's working to reverse the effects of sin on his creation. Remember the woman at the well, he said, how many, how many, where's your current husband? She said, blah, blah, blah. You know, he's restoring her to her relationships. The, the demoniac, if, you, if you're familiar with, with this part of the Bible, there's a scene where Jesus is in a, a kind of um, outside of a city. He's in a graveyard area and there's a guy who's demon possessed and he's cutting himself. And when Jesus heals him, it says that he is at peace. And remember when Jesus is in the boat and there's a storm. What does Jesus do? He says to the storm, peace. What's he doing? He's reversing the effects of sin on creation. He's rescuing his creation from the ravages of sin. He's restoring goodness to his creation. And then ultimately it's on the cross, isn't it? Where Jesus takes on all of the brokenness of this world. And death. He meets both of these great enemies of ours. He takes on the power of evil and death and he defeats them. And then when he rises from the dead, he opens the door to a new creation. That's why we celebrate Easter in the spring. Because the resurrection of Christ is a foreshadowing of what will happen to all of creation. Now that's the middle of the story. Jesus Christ coming back. You see, we we too often reduce Christianity to I get to go to heaven when I die. But Christ is about taking on the full brunt of what sin has done in both of these perspectives. Now, that's the middle of the story. Now let's look how death is configured at the end of the story. And for this, if you have your Bible, look at Isaiah 65. This passage that... um, That Mike read to us. Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. This is Isaiah. He's a preacher. And he's talking about what is going to happen when when the story is over. 
when, when all things are fixed, how does this story end? In this passage that Mike read, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not um, be remembered or come to mind. And then he goes on through. And what we see here is that God's new creation is full of joy. And I love this part of what Mike read. It's free from grief. And it's free from tears. And life is fulfilling. And work is guaranteed to be satisfying. And there's no more frustration. And even the environment itself is at peace. Some of these phrases that he read, no more will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Verse 23, your labor will not be in vain. You will not bear children for calamity. I love this. Verse 24, before I call, they call, I will answer. Do you ever feel like your prayers have to travel 10,000 light years to get to God and he just cannot be found? Here he says, look, there will be a day when I am so close, you won't even have to bring up the prayer before I'm there. Now jump over to Romans chapter 8. Here's another of the the pictures that describe to us what life will be like. Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the Son's of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, all of creation was twisted. It was broken. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That's such an incredible image. You, you think about a woman giving birth, right? And the kind of travail that's going on there. That's what, create, that's what hurricanes and tornadoes, and earthquakes, and fires, and cancer, and all of the... That's what that is. It is creation that is subjected to futility, groaning in its travail. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope, We were saved. In other words, this whole view of what's going to happen is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Far from the picture of of that, that being a Christian means we escape this place, that we escape earth, that we escape this embodied life. Here we look and we see that our our hope is not to be ghosts floating out there past Pluto, right? Singing Kumbaya to Jesus forever in some ghost convention in the sky. But our hope is for a renewed creation. That's the hope at the heart of our salvation. Here in Romans, we see that the whole cosmos is the focus of God's redemptive attention. He is concerned about every... He is concerned about trees... And deserts. And he's concerned about our ocean. He's concerned about why. Because when he made it. He loved it. And he looked at it. 
And he held it in his loving gaze. And he said, it's good. And he's not abdicating that to Satan. He's not giving that up to the worst we can throw at it. He's not going to allow it to stay twisted and broken. This is our hope. And not only for all of creation, but for us, we are just as jacked up as this planet. Inside, we are just, we have tsunamis and we have hurricanes and we have brokenness and we are twisted. And that is our hope. All of creation is waiting, I love this phrase, for the liberty of the glory of the children of God. Turn it, if you have your Bible, look at the last book. The next to last page probably, Revelation 21. Here's another image we have of the end. Revelation 21, verse 1, starting... Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, right? I didn't see some Casper convention in the sky. What does he see when God allows him to see what it's going to be like? A new place with all of its physicality. For the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Now, it is so critical that right there it does not say, Behold, man is now dwelling in the place of God. Right? It doesn't, that's not the direction of this exchange. The dwelling place of God has finally come back. Right? What is this new Jerusalem? This is heaven. This is the abode of God coming to earth. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. I don't understand this. But I'm convinced it's not just the presence of... It's not just no more will death occur. But it's somehow God will take the deaths that you have suffered. And he will heal that part of you. That death part of you will be transformed. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And behold, he is seated on the throne, says, Behold, I am making all things, all things new. Here again, we see the Christian hope is for a new heaven and a new earth. The whole cosmos healed. Creation delivered from its bondage to decay. Humanity set free. Now, what's important for us to see here is that Ultimate salvation is the reversal of everything sin did. See, the problem with a lot of us when we think about salvation is we're assuming some things. Salvation makes no sense until you think about what you're being saved from and what you're being saved to. What are we being saved from? All of that brokenness and death. What are we being saved to? Life the way it was meant to be. In other words, the Christian view of salvation is the answer to the two problems created by sin. When you recognize that the Bible is a story and you learn to read it with a beginning, a middle, and an end, when you do this, you see that the Christian view of salvation is that what is broken about this creation will be made right. And the imposter, the ambusher, The robber that we call death is kicked out 
of this place. So the Christian vision of where this whole thing is headed is that one day we get to enjoy life in a renewed, good, death-free creation. One of the most powerful moments in all of Scripture dealing with this subject is again the prophet Isaiah, but ten chapters back from where Mike read, chapter 55, it says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Right? If Julie Andrews had something to sing about, just wait, right? Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Do you see that in ultimate salvation, our salvation is linked with creation being set free and returned to its original good state. Now today, like I've said, is All Saints Sunday. And it's on this side of the renewal of all things. So what about death now? Well, let me be more specific. What about my daughter, Sydney? Or my grandmother? My grandmother has been dead for a number of years. Where is she? I mean, this world is still broken and people are still Dying. So clearly God has not done what he promised. Not yet. He has not remade the heavens and the earth. He has not kicked out the imposter called death. And if you're ever at a funeral where a preacher forgets that, you want to smack him, right? For somebody to act like this thing doesn't hurt? Well, first of all, Sydney, Momo, Abby... My friend Stephen, who was killed by a drunk driver, they're in heaven. They are with Christ right now. Remember the passage that Michelle read to us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. It describes those who died in Christ as sleeping. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, he doesn't say here that you shouldn't grieve about the dead. He just says our grief is different. It's very real. It's soul shattering. But there's a difference to it. Sleep, this metaphor. When someone is sleeping, they're still alive, right? But we often, have you ever heard it described as he is sleeping so deeply, he's dead to the world? That's what Paul is getting at. Mama, Abby... Sydney, Stephen, they're dead to this world, right? Now, for them, that's a good thing, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, they're dead to a lot of awful stuff. In other words, they're still alive, but they're taking a break from all the hurly-burly of things here. This is what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 1 when he says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart... He means die there and be with Christ, for that is far better. And Paul is not alone in this room for thinking that there are moments in life when death is far better. So those who are faithful to God and have died, they're in a state of restful happiness. 
But, now this is important. Heaven is not the end. That's not all there is. Heaven is only a temporary state. In which we're absent from this world. Present to God. Resting happily. But waiting. Heaven is incomplete. That's not the end of the Bible. The Bible does not end. The Bible does not say this story ends in heaven. Heaven is where the dead in Christ are now. They're, but they're waiting. They're restful. They're happy. But they are waiting. This is what God tells us in Second Peter chapter 3. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Look at it this way. I didn't make it up. It's a great illustration though. Suppose that you are homeless in a shelter in Miami. And one day a letter arrives addressed to you. And lo and behold, Bill Gates has died. All of his family have died. And through some freak trick of nature, you're the sole surviving relative. And here's your ticket to California. Um, to this mansion by the sea. Now, right now you're living in a shelter and you're homeless and you have nothing. And your ticket um, takes you through Dallas. Okay. You go to the airport and the ticketing agent says, where are you going? Right. As you're checking in. Now, what is your answer in that moment? Are you going to Dallas? Heck no. That's just art, right? That's just a stop. Where are you going? You're going to your mansion, right, in California. So let's suppose then when you get into Dallas and you have a little layover, all of a sudden, a lot of family that you haven't seen in a long time show up. And they're waiting in Dallas with you. That's heaven. It's a waiting place where we're together with all the other saints who are waiting. But we're not... Satisfied being there. You see, heaven is just temporary. It's the place where the dead in Christ are with God. They're in bliss. They are happy, but they are waiting. Go back. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. This passage Michelle read. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now verse 14 For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Do you see? It doesn't end there. It ends with God coming back and bringing who? The dead in Christ. So what is grandma doing right now? I I don't know. The Bible gives very little information about heaven. The Bible does not talk very much at all about heaven. It talks an awful lot about the new heavens and the new earth. One theologian says, the Christian hope is not life after death. It's life after the life after death. I mean, all these passages we read were about a renewed earth, a renewed heavens. This whole thing being healed. Grandma is with God and that's a cool thing. And it's something to look forward to. Paul looked forward to that. We know that she's resting. We know that she's happy. But we also know that she is waiting. Because no human is at peace without a body. 
She's longing. Remember the major emphasis of the Bible is on what happens after heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This stuff is all over scripture. See the problem is that our language has gotten really sloppy. And we read all these passages about the new heavens and the new earth and we call that heaven. But that's not heaven. Heaven is the place right now. The Bible doesn't call that next place heaven. It calls the next place the new heavens and the new earth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When Christ returns and completes his work of renewing all things, we're going to get a new body. For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, that's death. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, we, in this tent, this body we're in now. That's interesting. He calls our body a tent. What's he doing there? He's saying it's temporary, right? He's saying it's not as good as it will be, right? It's about being um, on a journey, right? It's about your headed. So this body is not all. There's more coming. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. Look, he said no human wants to be a soul without a body. That's what he means by naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed. He's saying the hope is not to be Casper. It's not just to be free from this body with God. That's not it. That's horrible. Who wants that? I can't even imagine that. But our hope is that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. I love that. He's saying if you think what you've got now is... He said, look, what you've got now isn't even life compared to what life will be. He's saying what you've got now will be swallowed up by real living. That's amazing. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So Grandma is going to come back with Christ. And what's she waiting for? To get her new body. Sydney was our baby that we miscarried. Sydney's body couldn't make it. It couldn't even survive the womb. Right? Grandma's body gave out. She just... Her heart stopped. But she's going to get a new body. And I'm going to get a new body. And you're going to get a new body. Look at chapter 15. Turn to the left a few pages. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When you start seeing this stuff in scripture, it's all over the place. Look at verse 40. Uh, Really, we don't have time, but it's the whole of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting in verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. Look what he's saying. He's saying by heavenly, he's saying your body is going to be changed. It's going to be marked by heaven. God is going to come here and there's going to be a merging of heaven and earth in your body. There are heavenly bodies and then there are those bodies that are just straight up of this earth now. The bodies we have now. And the glory... Of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. He's saying, look, you know, there is a glory to the human body now, but there's a whole nother degree of glory to this body God will give us. He said, it's just like there's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. He's saying there's going to be continuity between this body and that one, but there's also going to be difference. And so it is, verse 42, with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. He's saying there's going to be a day when they're going to plant you, right? And you're going to be fertilizing the daisies, right? 
We're going to sow your body into the ground, right? But it's going to be raised. And what is raised will not perish. From the moment you're born, you're starting to die, right? Your body is just breaking down. But what God brings out of the resurrection will not be like that. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And then what? Now, the Bible says a whole lot about what happens then. We're going to eat. We're going to drink, right? Jesus said to the disciples after he's risen from the dead, and he said, I'm not going to eat of the fruit of the vine again until I come back. See, Jesus is the first one resurrected from the dead. Look at Jesus after his resurrection to get a sense of what life will be like for you. He's physical, he's eating, he's drinking, but somehow the laws of this physical dimension don't hold him quite as much as they did before. Relationships will be there, work will be there, but it will no longer be full of thorns and thistles. It'll be satisfying. In other words, the hope of the Christian life is not heavenly bliss, it is earthly bliss. Have you ever been with friends on holiday, on vacation, or at Christmas time? And at some moment, it's just right, right? You've all eaten the turkey. Ken is sleeping on Zeke's couch. <laughs> Have you ever had... <laughs> That's this afternoon. <laughs> Have you ever had one of those moments where it is just right, right? And you're like... Ah, it just couldn't get any better than this. What I'm trying to say to you is that the most ordinary moments in the new heavens and the new earth will far exceed the most perfect moments of this life now. You see, it can get better. In those moments where inside everything is right, that's a taste. That's an appetizer. That's just a foreshadowing of what life will be like when Christ returns and makes all things new. The Christian hope is not simply that I get to go to heaven when I die, but that God will renew the entire cosmos. That's why taking a hike and it's so beautiful and so good, that's such a good thing to do. Because what are you doing? You're having hors d'oeuvres. You're, you're, you're reminding yourself of the feast that is to come when God will dwell here with us. And I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to take his hand and wipe all the tears from my face. When you read the Bible as one huge, sprawling, capacious narrative, you get this sense that life after life after death, the new heavens and the new earth, is more real than this life is now. See, I think a lot of us have this fuzzy doctrine of heaven that's immaterial, that it's not physical. And we get that more from Plato and popular kind of precious moments little stuff. (laughs) The life to come is not immaterial. I mean, I mean by that, it's not non-physical. C.S. Lewis captured this as well as anyone I know in his writings. In one time he says, the the grass will be greener and the blues will be bluer. 
A friend of mine, when his children, I've told a lot of you this before, when his children ask him, what's heaven like? or what, what's all, He says, oh, don't worry about heaven. Yeah. That's sleeping. That's resting. You're waiting on the new heavens and the new earth when you'll swim with dolphins and run with cheetahs. Now, a kid can sink his teeth into that, right? Because a kid knows the joy of an embodied life. Right? Children do. They love this. They're all over it. And you just take that. And he says to his sons, what you're doing there, just wait. Look, if, if, if you're really interested in reading more about this, C.S. Lewis wrote a series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. The last one is called The Last Battle. And it's all about this. One of, his, one of my favorite books that Lewis has written, though, is a book on prayer. Letters to Malcolm, I think it's called. And he's writing to this guy and talking to him about prayer. And he starts talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And he says, the hills and valleys of heaven, and by that he means the new heavens and the new earth, will be to those you now experience, not as a copy to an original, nor as a substitute to the genuine article, but as, a, as the flower to the root. The, new, the hills of the new heavens and the new earth compared to the hills we see now, They're more like a flower compared to the root. He said they're more like light compared to shadow. A diamond compared to a coal. The best mountain you've ever seen is a coal. Just wait until it's polished. Just wait until it's set free. Just wait until it's the diamond God made it to be. The birds will sing out and the waters flow and the lights and shadows move across the hills and the faces of our friends laugh upon us with amazed recognition. So your loved ones who were faithful to God have passed away. And we know that they are resting. And we know that they are happy. They're not suffering anymore. And we know that they are waiting. And today, All Saints Day, in the words of Martin Bucer, he's a great 16th century theologian. He said, we should give thanks to God. For those who've died. And we should rejoice with them. So that we may be strongly provoked to place greater confidence in the grace of God for ourselves. And to follow the example of their faith. Now isn't this after all what the writer of Hebrews says when he starts thinking about all of those that have died. At the end of that great chapter in Hebrews where he's like a just a great African-American preacher riffing on the heroes of the faith, right? And he gets to the end of it, and what does he say? And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, right? They're still waiting. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, when you think of those you love who have gone away, therefore, since we are surrounded... By so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray.